Blog Talk Radio. Come back home to Africa. Come back home 
Africa. Come Passing down the great Obia stick 
along with the knowledge of the life-giving herbs, roots, plants, rituals, spirits, minerals, and indeed the legacy, culture, tradition, history of our sacred story, our sacred story. Please, if you will, stop and like, follow, share, subscribe on all platforms available. And most certainly, I am grateful and honored by your continued support and participation in this broadcast. I think I'm in, what, my 14th year now, 13th year, 14th year, I'm not sure, (laughs) but I'm grateful. I'm certainly grateful that we come and create this shared sacred space at high noon U.S. Central Standard Time, or whatever time it is in your portal of the world at this moment. We certainly are grateful for the shared, shared sacred space that we create and recreate to mirror our best interests here in this space each and every available day. I am because my creators are all-powerful, open, and receptive to all that operates for my good here and now in this most present moment in time space. I create and recreate the reality that mirrors my best interest, and I'm releasing and letting go of those things which impede my progress. This fire that dwells within consumes all but the truth, and for that I am truly and indeed grateful. We have never lost our connection to spirit, beloved. We have never lost our connection to the ancestors. We have never lost our connection to God and the goddess. And for indeed, the black woman is God. The black woman is God. The black woman is God. And therefore, we are born God, just as we are born human. We're not born adults. We're not born mature. We're not born spiritually adept. Indeed, we have some growing and some evolving and healing and transformation that must take, take place. For indeed, it is the reason we are here, if, if you're still trying to figure that out. We are indeed gods having this earthen clay vessel experience, this plastic illusionary experience so that we can move some energy around in our minds, in our hearts, in our universe. And again, for that, I'm grateful, understanding that this spiritual knowledge and power lies in this efficacy, your ability to apply it, to utilize it, to manifest it, to produce powerful, reliable, tangible, lasting results right here and right now in this most present moment in time space. All else is vanity. All else is an illusion. All else is just ego. For indeed, all we have is this most present moment in time space. The last five minutes are already gone, and you can go back and revisit it in the archive. (laughs) But indeed, it is in our memory And the future that we seek to create and recreate is but a creative illusion until we apply the work and begin to bring that vision, that illusion, that imagination, that creative space into physical plane reality. 
many of my children know that you first do that by journaling and keeping consistent journaling. And listen, I journal the astrology. I journal the alignments of the planets on any given day. I journal what major or minor events might be going on on any given day. And most certainly I journal dreams, visions, creative imagination. Businesses are built on paper, sometimes on newspaper with crayon, sometimes on brown paper bag with a pencil. But businesses, millionaires, billionaires, trillionaires grow and develop and are built first in our imaginations and our creative imagination. And call it what you, what you will, your prayer space, your meditative space, your imaginative space, your creative space. Indeed, they are interwoven and interlinked together. It's a very thin veil that rests between our imagination and the spiritual realms. For without a vision, the people perish. Without ability to see and see creatively, you you have no way of foretelling, forecasting, foreseeing a future that mirrors your best interest and certainly that mirrors who you seek to step into and become in your best interest moving forward. So without the manifestation, without the homework, without the application, it's just really cute conversation. It's just one more hour of dialogue and, and all the volumes of dialogue that we get from, from the media, from the journalists, from social media, from each other, from the voices in our heads. And so we must keep alive the active, creative imagination. Once you give up on your dreams, once you give up on your vision, once you give up on your ability to see and create and recreate a reality first in your mind, then you have no blueprint for formalizing that energy and bringing it now into our waking reality right here, right now, in this most present moment in time space. Greetings all that I have not already acknowledged. Most certainly I welcome you, Chef Bougie, you and yours. Uh, Rollins Brown, Neophyte Bokoa, F. Marie, uh, Tasha Touch, The Infinite One Lives, uh, and all those who I may not be able to see right away, but I certainly can see your numbers and certainly do appreciate the continued support and listenership, both live but also in archive. And certainly I can be accessed in archive at your leisure and convenience on multiple platforms, but most certainly, uh, and I'm going to scroll that now, youtube.com forward slash B-O-O-D-O-O-T-Y-E. And of course, I can be found in archive at www.org talkradio.com forward slash the hyphen divine hyphen prince. And so please enjoy, re-enjoy, listen, re-listen in archive. Um, I, I certainly do appreciate the continued support. I also want to 
move on in our conversation about Syrian spirits and animal ancestors. I think we had a really great show uh, last episode and a great deal of participation and questions and commentary and uh, new information. And so I would like to continue that momentum uh, by speaking a little bit more. Greetings, Shamakia. Come on in, beloved. We certainly do appreciate you. Um, I certainly want to continue that conversation. And and I want to start by first, you know, reminding ourselves that we stand on the shoulders of mighty ancestors, monumental ancestors, universal cosmic ancestors, not not just the ones that, you know, your relatives and, and your human relatives at that. But indeed, ancestor worship and veneration is among the world's oldest religious practice. I just aired a documentary uh, pre-show uh, on Neanderthals and Cro-Magnums and, and, and humanity sort of meeting and intersecting uh, for the first time. And, and so we clearly have archaeological footprints of our pre-human ancestors, other hominids, showing a, a, a deal of reverence, honor, respect for nature. And indeed, there is no voodoo without nature. There is no ifa, lukumi, kandable, palo, meyote without nature. And so in that evolutionary process of bonding and rebonding, readapting with nature. The Neanderthals and the Cro-Magnums and the, I think it's the Denisovians showed an archaeological footprint for not only acknowledging their own humanity in terms of burial and, and how they showed up in the face of death, uh, but certainly in the adaptation of jewelry and ornamentation and, and symbolism that speak to ancestor acknowledgement based on the belief that the deceased continue to have an active interest in our daily lives, continue to intervene, uh, continue to provide intervention, continue to, to get involved. And they may be able to influence what happens on a daily basis in our lives. Some of us believe so. Some of us understand so. And so this feeling that the dead have an ongoing interest in the daily lives of their descendants may come from dreams in which dead ancestors appear. In many cultural traditions, deceased ancestors are regularly honored with ceremonies so that they will continue to, to assist and intervene on the behalf of humanity. And of course, the great Mother Africa is, of course, the birthplace of our species, Homo sapiens, and is the home of many diverse cultural traditions, including hunter-gatherer groups, agricultural villages, pastoral and, and herding groups, which raise livestock. And so the foundational religion of many of these different African groups seems to be nature, and ancestral worship. In their book 
called Cultures and Societies of Africa by Simon and B.B. Ottenberg. Ancestor worship is practiced in many great African societies. The ancestors are seen as functioning members of the family, lineage, and clan. They are in position of authority over the living and must be treated with honor and respect. Simon and Phoebe Ottenberg also report the living honor their ancestors by offering them sacrifices and behaving in a way which they will approve and in turn are rewarded or punished according to how they have performed their duties. In many African societies, ancestral spirits behave like humans and are able to feel human emotions, including anger and jealousy. Another author, William Havilland, in his textbook, Cultural Anthropology, writes, they even may participate in family and lineage affairs, and seats will be provided for them, even though the spirits are invisible. When you set up an ancestral shrine, ancestral table, plates are available, cups and saucers are available, knives and forks and spoons are, are available, even though the spirits are not visible in a uh, physical sense. If they are annoyed, they may send sickness. They may send imbalance. They may send disease. They can even send death. And, and certainly when we remove the spiritual components for our just devoutly left-brain individuals, certainly science now supports ancestral memory surviving in the blood. Ancestral memory surviving in the very DNA coding of, of our bodies. So writing about the Bantu people in 1932, 1932, British anthropologist Audrey Richards, in her classic ethno, ethnography, Hunger Ethnology, Ethnography, <laughs> y'all know I got dyslexia, Ethnography, Hunger and Work in a Savage Tribe. Hunger and work in a savage tribe. To begin with, and I quote, to begin with, we see at once that the whole core of ancestor worship among these people is centered in the cult of the immediate family gods. The ceremonies offered in the village or tribal deities grow out of the family rites and are, in a sense, a replica of them, unquote. We regard the sacrifices made to the ancestors, Audrey Richards wrote. The typical Bantu sacrifice consists in the offering of flour or beer to the ancestral spirits, or else the killing of an animal and its division among the people according to fixed roles. And that's an important nuance because people often think that, you know, Animals are being, you know, mutilated, discarded, wasted, you know, uh, frankly. Uh, and, and this is just not the case. Ancestor worship is a part of daily Bantu life, Audrey Richards writes. The ancestral cult takes its root and being 
first of all, in the ordinary occasions of family life. Sacrifices of food are thus made before eating and even before cooking the meal. The sacrifice of an animal is done for special occasions, often to mark rites of passage, which, you know, such as birth, the naming of a child, marriage, initiation and death, which mimic spiritual evolutionary patterns, cycles, and seasons as well. Universal and cosmic cycles and seasons of birth, naming, marriage, initiation, and death. Some of my Haitian-centered voodoo practitioners understand what I'm speaking here. So offerings are made also at the sickness of one of the inmates of the household or to ensure luck in the hunting field, all events which affect the individual family group. In the home, there are household shrines to ancestors. And we're very familiar with household shrines, altars, boveda, in, in the sense of um, your white table, your uh, ceremony, your misa, uh, but certainly ancestral tables and shrines that we have now set up in our homes in a more modern but, but traditional context. Marriage among the Bantu requires a cooperation of the ancestral spirits to recognize the validity of a marriage or relationship, according to Audrey Richards. Without the offering of a sacrifice from the relatives of the bride to the spirits of the groom's family, the marriage is, in some cases, incomplete. A Bantu-speaking matrilineal group. In her 1954 essay, reprinted in a book called Cultures and Societies of Africa, Cultures and Societies of Africa by Elizabeth Colson, C-O-L-S-O-N, uses the Bantu word Mizimu in referring to ancestral spirits. Muzimu in the singular, Mizimu in the plural, Muzimu in the singular, mi-zi-mu, in the plural, M-I-Z-I-M-U. She reports that mizimu and living members of a kinship group are part of a single whole, and the ties between them transcend the bounds of time and space. Among each Tonga, the mizimu are ancestors from the mother's matrilineal lineage and from the father's matrilineal lineage. It is important that the Mizimu are remembered by the living. And for my godchildren, my initiates, I'm going to repeat that. Among each Tonga, the Mizimu are ancestors from the mother's matrilineal lineage and from the father's matrilineal lineage. It is important that the Mizimu are remembered by the living, according to Elizabeth Carlson. The Mizimu are thought to be concerned that they should not be forgotten. And so they send sickness and other misfortunes to the living as a reminder that beer and other offerings must be provided. 
they are anxious about the living and how they maintain the customs that they practiced when they were alive. And therefore, they punish departures from custom. In return, they offer to the living some protection against other spirits and against sorcery. All Tonga adults make regular offerings to Mizimu, the matrilineal ancestors. For example, when moving from one dwelling to another, offerings are made before leaving the old dwelling and soon after entering the new dwelling. Offerings are made when they when there is any change in material status, such as obtaining a new plow, building a cattle corral, or housing. These offerings are concerned with the single household. Soon after birth, each Tonga receives names from the maternal and paternal matrilineal lineages. Elizabeth Colson continues, each person received his initial position within society as a member of his own matrilineal group and as a child of his father's mother's lineage. The true groups indicate their acceptance of responsibility of him by giving him a name which is associated with a guardian Mizumu or a guardian ancestor, a particular guardian ancestor. The guardian Mizumu, the, the ancestors as a whole, act as special guardians throughout life. And from these guardian Mizumu, have their personality. Concerning the guardian Mizumu, they can be regarded as symbolic representations of the overwhelming importance of the patrilineal and matrilineal or paternal and maternal matrilineal groups. I stand corrected. Paternal and maternal, your father and your mother's mother's groups in determining the original social status of an individual and the responsibility of his well-being throughout life. And that's why our table, and I'm only speaking to those who are doing ancestor work and divination with me right now, that's why our table is set up so specifically, so specifically and unique to our lineage, to how we operate in our lineage. And for those who are, who are paying attention, I know many are, I'm speaking lineages and, and groups and regions that primarily affect the Aos diaspora here in the U.S. So two guardian Mizumu, two guardian ancestors from each side are of equal importance. And both are thought to determine his personality. Two guardian ancestors, one from each side, are of equal importance, and both are thought to determine his personality. At death, some people may become ancestors, may become Mizumu. The new Muzimu is a creation of the living and not an automatic emanation of the dead man. The Tonga believe that the matrilineal group has the right to decide 
whether or not a dead man's own Mizumu shall come into existence. So in our acknowledging the dead, acknowledging the ancestors, we do so in how we interact and, and show up in the lives of the living. First and foremost, young children, babies, infants, adolescents, young people, teenagers, the generations that follow us, and then certainly elders. And not just your paternal and maternal elders, but how we regard elder and eldership and the mentorship and involvement of elders. Because, you know, we're inviting ancestors to get involved all up in our loving relationships, our career and, and, and employment statuses and, and our health and wellness, you know, then, then know that our elders have traditionally held a place, a position of importance in making decisions in how we move forward as a society. Another example of ancestor worship or veneration is found among the Swazi in, South, in Southern Africa, an African agricultural chiefdom. The Swazi believe that following death, the spirit or breath leaves the body. The ancestors continue to watch over their descendants and can punish them with sickness and misfortune if their behavior is bad. In her ethnography, the Swazi, a South African kingdom by Hilda Cooper, K-U-P-E-R, again, the Swazi, a South African kingdom by Hilda Cooper. Ancestors have greater wisdom, foresight, and power than the rest of mankind. But no spirit of a deceased ever reaches complete deification or is regarded as omnipotent. Swazi ancestors are approached as practical beings. There is no conflict between the ethics of the ancestral cult and the mundane desires of life. And this is indeed reinforced when I teach and share that our ancestors alone have had this human experience, this human incarnation. Indeed, they understand left from right, right from wrong, up from down, uh, the desires and the tragedies, you know, of the hearts of, of humanity. Who better to stand at the front line of defense? Who better to push forward, not for, uh, uh, you know, uh, personal, you know, satisfaction, because indeed these people are, are beyond, you know, our earthly sensibilities of satisfaction and, and carnal pleasure, but, but now exist in an evolved form in another dimensional space uh, within the spirit realm. So they push forward always in our best interest. They push forward always to benefit the whole. They push forward always to benefit, um, to to heal the, the generational curses, but to also push forward that which is best in us as individuals, but also that which is best in us that has come from 
inheritance that that is inherent within us and, and, and within our bodies and our, our minds and our spirits. Each family propitiates its own ancestors at the specific domestic event of birth, marriage, death, the building and moving of homes. In addition, the royal ancestors periodically receive public recognition. The Talensi, T-A-L-L-E-N-S-I, Talensi of Northern Ghana, have beliefs and rituals which are centered around the ancestors. Among the Talensi, there appears to be a hierarchy of ancestors and of the shrines dedicated to them. The ancestors can be direct. The ancestors can be direct. Who's heard that before? Identifiable lineal ancestors, or they can be more generic ancestors, which may include nature spirits, nature spirits, animal ancestors. One of the features of the Talensi ancestor cult is the Good Destiny Shrine, which are small household shrines formed objects associated with specific events, such as success in hunting or doing well in farming. In this chapter, in the book titled The Oxford Handbook of the Archaeology of Ritual and Religion, the Oxford Handbook of the Archaeology of Ritual and Religion by Timothy Insoll, I-N-S-O-L-L, Timothy Insoll. Among the Talensi, destiny is negotiated via the so-called destiny ancestors, who are ritually serviced and placated through regular sacrifice, offerings, and libations at the shrine. The shrines are agents for unique ritual relationships between individuals whose destiny they control and unique configurations of ancestors. The Bakongo, the Bakongo are a matrilineal people whose traditional homelands are in the Congo region of Africa. As a matrilineal people, each person belongs to the clan of the mother, and these matrilineal clans form the basis of the society. In his book, The Heathen, The Heathen, Primitive Man and His Religion, The Heathen, Primitive Man and His Religion, Harvard anthropologist William Howells writes, And here is the point of religious importance. Its members are knit almost as strongly in their feelings to the dead ancestors of the clan as they are to one another. It is all one clan, which marches through time like a parade, and the dead are simply those who have passed a point which the living are still approaching. The Inyakayusa, N-Y-A-K-Y-U-S-A, 
Inyakusa are an African village dwelling people. In his 1936 report, reprinted in Cultures and Societies of Africa by Godfrey Wilson, the religion of the Inyakusa falls clearly into three parts. The cult of the dead relatives or the ancestor cult. Number two, the belief in witchcraft. Number three, the use of magic or medicine. Now, they make a clear distinction between medicines and magic and then witchcraft. So the three parts that the religion of the Inya Koyusa operate from is the cult of the dead relatives or the ancestor cult as a foundation, the belief in witchcraft, and number three, the use of medicines and magic. Dreams are an important part of the Inya Kayusa ancestral cult. The mental basis of the worship of dead relatives called I-Avayoka, A-V-A-Y-O-K-A, Avayoka, and of the belief in their moral power consists of dreams. Dreams are called Injosi, E-N-J-O-S-I, Injosi. Dreams of dead kingsmen are common, but they are also feared. The Inya Kayusa funeral rites are intended to drive away the soul of the dead man. The people ask the soul, do not long for our company. Do not come to us in dreams. And, and, and it is why we respond to, for instance, in, in Haitian voodoo and, and Creolized uh, voodoo, we respond to Gede, for example, in the way that we do. We respond in Yoruba culture to Egungu masquerades in the way that we do. There indeed is a, a sense of love and respect uh, and, and reverence and, and a desire for information and their assistance. But there's also then that fear that if they make physical contact with you, for example, uh, they can inadvertently capture your soul and carry you into the spirit realm or the spiritual dimensional space, um, you know, j- j- just on contact. Of course, there's that fear of, of moral, you know, justice and, and ethical justice based on those behaviors, and particularly those behaviors uh, that we believe no one sees, no one knows, but, but the ancestors see and know all. See me, ancestors see me, ancestors see you, ancestors see all. And since the beginning of human history, people have lived in close contact with nature, certainly in the beginnings of uh, hominid development, but certainly with the dead or ancestors. Just one simple practical point of reference um, is the attraction of, of predators who might smell a body, or smell rotting meat, you know, left over from from a meat a meal, you know, of of great meat content. But particularly, 
outside the the human uh, Homo sapiens species. I believe that the Neanderthal ate. 85 to 90% meat uh, as part of their diet. So they had a relationship to meat and animals and, and decay and certainly would have soon developed um, hygienic behavior for handling uh, rotting meat and, and of course, uh, a deceased body, but certainly began to take on uh, behaviors reminiscent of consciousness of ancestors and certainly powers greater than ourselves that existed in nature and subsequently um, in, in the cosmos, in the universe. We've had close contact with animals as hunters, gatherers, farmers, and have developed myths and legends around animals. All kind of creatures from fierce leopards to tiny spiders, Anansi, play important roles in Mythology, a myth can give special meaning or extraordinary qualities to common animals, such as frogs, crocodiles, alligators, bears. However, other creatures found in myths, such as many-headed monsters, right out the gate, Kemet, ancient Egypt had many-headed monsters, dragons and unicorns and, and uh, you know, bird heads on human body forms that, you know, science suggests may not have ever existed in the real world. But was it a attempt to represent something that they may have seen or experienced? and what we call the, the quote-unquote, the real world. Many myths explore relationships between humans and animals. People may talk with animals, fight with animals, even in some cases marry animals. And I'm not talking about sex and behavior. I'm talking about spirituality, religion, tradition. Sometimes animals perform services for humans, including guiding them through the underworld or helping them complete tasks. One large group of myths involving animal transformation or changes between humans and animal states. Other myths focus on that connection between people and animals is, again, Kemet, ancient Egypt, but Mesopotamia, Phoenicia, many Mediterranean, northern African, regions. Even in deep into China, we found ancestral spirit worship that demonstrate human-animal hybrid or relationships beyond just the physical transformation into animals, but a spiritual transformation that takes place, that happens that causes the best qualities in nature to stand up in humanity, and therefore we honor that power. We acknowledge that um, within us. So, you know, a princess kisses an enchanted frog, and, you know, he turns into this handsome prince in, in the Eurocentric fairy tale, 
you know, and we live happily ever after. Well, these type of transformations in which turn to animals or animals turn into people take place in myths and legends throughout the Aboriginal and Indigenous world, and and just have not been given uh, the same coverage. Uh, transformation myths are about crossing the boundaries that set humans apart from the rest of the world. Indigenous American mythology describe a time in the past when the boundaries between people and animals were less sharply drawn, being freely changed, beings freely changed forms. This is known as shape-shifting. Bears were especially close to humans. And in some Native American stories, bears appear as humans, wearing coats made of bear skin. The Tshishan, or Shimshin, T, capital T, S-I-M-S-H-I-A-N. I believe it's pronounced Shimshian, Shimshian. The Shimshian people of southern Alaska and the northern coast of British Columbia talk about Asdawal, A-S-D-I-W-A-L, Asdawal, a young man who follows a white bear up a mountain to the sky. He discovers that the beast is actually a beautiful woman dressed in a bear skin, and he marries her. The ancient Greeks and Romans believed that the gods could blur the boundaries between different classes of beings. Ovid's Metamorphosis is a collection of Greek and Roman legends about mortals whom the gods turned into animals and plants. Both Chinese and Slavic mythologies include tales of people who under some evil force, turning the werewolves. The Scots have stories about Selkies. We talked about Selkies in the last edition. Imaginary sea creatures that resemble seals and take on human form, marry men and women, and then return to the sea. We have stories and tellings and, and practices within Haitian voodoo that mirror a very similar practice of marrying a loa. In fact, the theme of animal wives and husbands comes up over and over again in this culture. Native Americans tell of girls marrying bears and men marrying deer. Eskimo and Chinese tales mention beautiful, seductive women who turn out to be foxes in the sky. In one Eskimo story, a woman enters the home of a hunter while he is out. She cooks for him and stays for some time, but eventually she puts on her fox skin and disappears. The well-known fable of Beauty and the Beast is a modern version of the myth of the animal husband whose beastly form cannot disguise his noble soul. Transformations are forced on people by sorcerers. 
or magician or as punishment for offending the God. When people voluntarily seek transformation, however, the change can be a sign of power. In many societies, individuals called shamans were thought to have supernatural abilities, including the power to communicate with animals or to transform themselves into animals. South American shamans were said to be able to change themselves into jaguars. Myths, legends, folktales often highlight the close links between people and animals. West Africans and Native Americans, for example, believe that each person has a magical or spiritual connection to a particular animal that can act as a guardian, a source of wisdom, or an inspiration. Among the Plains Indians of North America, individuals had to discover their spirit animal through a mystical experience called a vision quest. Some Native American religions in Central America include Nagalism, N-A-G-U-L, I'm sorry, N-A-G-U-A-L-I-S-M, Novelism, the idea that each person's life is linked to an animal or object called a novel. If the novel is hurt or killed, the person suffers or dies. One myth says the novels fight on the side of the indigenous Americans against invading Spaniards centuries ago. Sometimes a family, a clan, or a whole society feels a special attachment to a certain kind of animal, usually one they consider to be an ancestor or a protector. This connection, called totemism, defines social groups and their behavior. Hunters are sometimes forbidden to kill their group's totem animal, for example. Uh, We see this in Ifa and also in Voodoo. Uh, in, in certain cases where your totem or your loa or your risha has an aversion to certain plants, animals, or food items, and so you do as well. Or they have a love for certain plants, animals, and food items, and so therefore you make sacrifice by not consuming or utilizing these items outside the ritual sacred space. Among the Native Americans of the Pacific Northwest, the beaver, the eagle, the raven, the killer whale are all associated with particular clans. People display their identity and status with totems, which are tall standing logs carved with images or painted with images of mythical animals. Totem poles mark village entrances, burial sites of chieftains, and the entrance to each clan house, and certainly sacred grounds. In many societies, people believed that shamans had animal helpers who guided them through the supernatural realm. This idea is similar to the common image of a witch's familiar and Eurocentric uh, mythology. An animal, usually a black cat, 
that gives the witch certain powers. Traditional African religions had societies that performed rituals that involved wearing leopard skin, for example. The men in these secret societies believed they took on a leopard strength by performing these rituals. Animals offer helpful advice to ordinary people in many legends. Generally, those who ignore the animal's advice fall to their own devices uh, and fail to achieve their goal. Many cultures have legends of human children raised by animals. The Romans claimed that a wolf mother had nurtured their legendary ancestors, Romulus and Remus. The story of Tarzan, who was raised by African apes, is a modern white supremacist version of this ancient myth created by Edgar Burroughs in the early 20th century. Roles in myth and legend where animals fill a wide variety of roles exist throughout the Aboriginal world. Many stories explain the part that animals played in the creation of the world or in the bringing of fire and other useful and necessary skills, tools or farming skills that were required for human survival. Animal stories also tell how things come to be the way they are and how animals got their appearance or their characteristics. A story of the Seneca Indians, for example, says that the chipmunk stripes were originally bear scratches. In some mythological traditions, the gods take on animal form. The ancient Egyptians portrayed their gods, the comedic deities, as animals or as humans with the head of animals. Bast, for example, was a cat goddess. Horus was a hawk goddess. Uh, I'm sorry, a hawk god. Uh, although supernatural animals such as Pegasus, a winged horse of Greek mythology, were not gods themselves. They were often created, given power, or protected by the gods. Some myths associate animals with the creation of the world. Asian and indigenous American traditions place the earth on the back of an enormous turtle. Myths of Africa and elsewhere tell the, earth, tell the tale that the earth was formed or supported by the body of a huge serpent. Some legends say the earth features, such as lakes or canyons, were carved by the digging of mythic beasts. Animals are linked to human origins as well as the origin in the world. Many Native American groups believe they were descended from animals. And the Yawa people of southern China trace their origin to a dog ancestor, which is why, you know, well, never mind. <laughs> okay. Which is why certain things that we repeat in our community should not continue to be repeated in our community and, and often have their roots in racist, white, supremacist uh, ideology and have very little 
uh, to do with the reality of a people or a group and, and their relationship to uh, any particular practice or animal in this case. Animals also help shape human existence by acting as messengers to the gods. An African myth tells that the gods sent two animals to earth, one with the message of eternal life, one bringing death. The messenger of death arrived first, which explains why people die. The Pima indigenous of North America say that a rattlesnake brought death to the world. Animals can play a positive role as well, bringing people the gifts of civilization, various traditional African myths, for example, tell of a dog, chimpanzee, a wasp, praying mantis, bringing fire to humanity. The Bambara people of Mali believe that a sacred antelope taught people to farm long ago. The Zunai and Navajo myths here in the, in the indigenous Americas show animals behaving heroically on behalf of people. In Asian legends, monkeys perform brave deeds. In Mayan myths, they possess artistic talents, particularly in writing and sculpture. Symbols often in our religion and spiritual practices incorporate uh, animal parts, animal symbolism, animal energy, and, and certainly animal ancestral energy. Animals sometimes appear as characters that are believed to represent powers, uh, represent characteristics that are, are said to be useful or even uh, sought after uh, among humans. Common phrases such as fly as a fox or brave as a lion or everyday examples of the practice of using animals to represent human qualities. And as we you know, briefly discussed in the chat from the last episode, we, we're seeing sort of a reversal. I think Craig Byrne suggested it, uh, where we are wholly putting onto the animals now human characteristics and not necessarily the best human characteristics. The dog often appears as a symbol of loyalty in myths and legends. In the tiger's sense of power and vitality, Celtic mythology, the boar or the wild pig symbolizes war, and its image was carved on helmets and on coins. Many cultures have stories in which animal characters representing human qualities represent moral lessons, value lessons, ethical lessons. Animals can also be symbols of the gods. People traditionally saw owls as wise. Uh, one of the, the totems of Black Hawk Voodoo is the owl. Therefore, Athena, the Greek goddess, was often shown as an owl. Likewise, dolphins can represent the presence of the sea god Poseidon or the Loa Aque in, in our case, or, or, or the uh, Loa Lazarin. Tricksters also often take on animal forms. 
are said to be mischievous and unpredictable beings who use deceit, magic, and cleverness to fool others. But, but let me again stress, these stories aren't suggesting the equalness of the animals. These stories are showing or using animals to characterize the deceitful wickedness of mankind. And although some tricksters are just playing pranks, others act in extremely harmful ways. Occasionally, the tricksters themselves wind up being tricked or trapped in many of these stories. And their limited magical powers may serve to show that God, the goddess, has the greater power, ancestors have the greater power, the final say, and certainly even the realm of magic and, and witchcraft, there is a moral code, a value code, a set of protocols that are embedded in these traditions. In Native American mythology or indigenous mythology here in the Americas, the best known trickster is the coyote, who has the power to take on human forms. Remember Wiley Coyote from the cartoons? Are you all figuring out that many of our early cartoons were stolen, <laughs> appropriated from these aboriginal tales they were retelling with now copyrights and trademarks of these aboriginal stories? One of the coyote's favorite tricks involved masquerading as a hunter in order to sleep with the hunter's wife. Many African based legends feature a trickster spider, a trickster tortoise, a trickster hare or rabbit that uses cunning to outwit larger and often more powerful beings. The enslaved Africans brought tales of the trickster here to the States, where it eventually became popular as the character of Br'er Rabbit. Br'er Rabbit. Monsters from the great sea beast called Leviathan in the Bible to the mutant lizard Godzilla of modern science fiction movies. Monstrous animals appear in many kinds of myths. Monsters represent our darkness, our fear, chaos, disorder, uncontrollable destruction, and in many cases, Protection, a protection of righteous law versus imbalance. A monster is more than just a large or fearsome animal. It is something abnormal, something that or defends the law of society and the natural world. You might consider Zongbeto. Z-A-N-G-B-E-T-O, Zangbeto, in Western Africa, Togo, Benin, uh, Ghana, Nigeria, a haystack, if you will, a whirling haystack, often associated with ancestors, but also associated with justice, causing chaos, disorder, uh, and sometimes people to disappear. In, in, in the case of reading, justice. 
And so an animal may be monstrous simply due to its abnormal size or due to its powerful energy. The most dreadful monsters, however, do not correspond to anything known in the real world. Often they are hybrids, mixtures of different species, which represents another kind of blurring of natural boundaries. Dragons, for example, are usually shown as snake or reptile with bats' wings, and sometimes with the head resembling that of a horse. In other traditions, dragons have multiple heads or the ability to change shape. Other hybrid creatures, including the griffin, a creature with the head and four parts and wings of an eagle and the body, hind legs, and tail of a lion. Quetzalcoatl, a god of Mayan, Toltec, and Aztec mythology. Have y'all noticed that I can pronounce many of the indigenous words a lot better than I can some of our uh, European and English <laughs> modern counterparts? A god of Mayan, Totec, and Aztec mythology is represented as a plumed or feathered serpent, part bird, part snake hybrid. In addition, the um, formerly known as the Pygmies, which is a white racist word. Remember Michael from Good Times? He was good for calling out white racist words. The Pygmies are known as Mbuti or by their ethnic name. We no longer call them pygmies in South Central Africa. Tell stories of encounters with living dinosaurs. A beast the size of an elephant with a long neck and brownish gray skin. Some hybrids are human and animal combinations. The centaur, for example, is half man and half horse. The uh, Ikena E. C-H-I-D-N-A. Ikidna is a snake woman. The manticore, M-A-N-T-I-C-O-R, manticore is part human, part lion, part dragon. The sator, S-T-Y-R, sator, I often get it confused with, with a centaur. Sator is a man-like being with the lower body of a goat. I think a centaur has the lower body of a horse. In mythological hybrid creatures often have qualities that are split between the useful and the not so useful, or, or the good or the bad, depending on your interpretation of the scenario, much like their appearance. Certain animals appear frequently in myths and legends of different cultures around the world, often with different meanings. Snakes or serpents, for example, can be helpful or harmful. The Romans regarded snake spirits as protection for their homes. The Hopi Indians who live in a dry part of the American Southwest have stories about a water snake that is associated with spring. Because the snake sheds its skin as it grows, some cultures see it as a symbol of rebirth and associate it with healing. In the Bible, however, the snake is a treacherous creature that induces Adam and Eve to sin. A Japanese myth tells of a huge snake with eight heads 
that holds a princess prisoner. Snakes and snake-like dragons play a similar evil guardian role in many other tales. Now, the bull is another animal that appears in many myths from Kemet to Mesopotamia, uh, uh, all around the world. It can represent either tremendous energy and power or frightening strength. In Celtic mythology, the bull was a sign of good fortune and fertility. In several Greek legends, bulls were associated with death and destruction. Of course, in Kemet, bulls were associated with fertility and and being blessed and and being protected. And it was against the law to kill a bull. At different times, the hero Theseus, H-E-S-E-U-S, killed both the wild bull that was destroying farmers' fields and the minotaur a dangerous half-man, half-bull monster. Among other indigenous Americans who traditionally survived by hunting buffalo, myths focus on the buffalo's fertility and generosity. The buffalo is also said to control love affairs and determine how many children a woman will bear. To the Celtic people, bulls stood for strength and power. Irish mythology tells of two famous beasts, the white-horned bull, pronounced Quanut, C-O-N-N-A-C-H-T, Quanut, and the brown bull of Ulster, U-L-S-T-E-R. The rulers of Quanat and Ulster each boasted of the size of their bulls. However, some said that the gods had sent the bulls to Ireland to cause trouble. Eventually, the two bulls met in a fierce battle that raged across all of Ireland. The brown bull won, but then died. The death of the two magical bulls brought peace between Quanat and Ulster. Dogs almost always appear in myths and legends in a positive light. Indigenous stories generally portray the dog as a symbol of friendship and loyalty. In Greek and Roman mythology, dogs often acted as guardians. The three-headed dog, Cerberus, C-E-R-B-E-R-U-S, Cerberus, for example, guarded the interests of the underworld. Many cultures associated dogs with death as well as with protection. Both the ancient Egyptians and the Aztecs of Mexico believed that dogs guided the dead on their journey through the afterlife. Occasionally, dogs appear in negative roles, such as the hellhound garm in Norse mythology or the fighting dogs belonging to the Greek goddess Hecate. The goat is another animal with both positive and negative qualities. Male goats are negatively linked with dangerous or uncontrolled sexual lust, 
while female ghosts appear as mother figures. In Greek mythology, a she-goat nursed the god Zeus when he was a baby boy. Goat images in mythology are often associated with sexuality and fertility. Foxes in mythology are usually quick, cunning, sneaky. Japanese legends tell a fox spirit called Kitsune, K-I-T-S-U-N-E, Kitsune, who can turn themselves into people, are often deceitful, and have the power of witches. In another example of the two-sided nature, Japanese mythology also portrays the fox as the messenger of Inari, I-N-A-R-I, Inari, the god of right. The ancient Romans regarded foxes as fire demons, perhaps because of their reddish coat. In Christian mythology, the fox is associated with the devil. The frog appears in many uh, transformation stories, most likely because it goes through a transformation of its own from tadpole to frog. Another animal that goes through physical transformation, of course, is the butterfly, which begins life as a caterpillar, rests in a cocoon, and emerges as a butterfly to spread its wings. The Greek word for butterfly, psyche, is also the word for soul. And in Greek mythology, the butterfly was a symbol of the soul's transformation after the death of the body. The fact that animals play a role in mythologies of all cultures demonstrates their universal importance to human society. Animals were and are an important source of food, labor, and even companionship to people everywhere. Domesticated animals today, such as one finds on a farm in particular, were the backbone of agricultural societies. While more Nomadic country societies relied on wild animals for their food and their skin. And although modern cultures continue to use animals for the same purposes they did thousands of years ago, ancient cultures relied heavily on animals for survival. And they lived closer to wild animals than people do today. This heavy reliance on Physical closeness to animals resulted in a rich oral tradition in which animals both help and harm humans, but also show up in the stories of animal ancestors. They provide both food, they can also be dangerous. Animal ancestors represent the mystery and power of the natural world, which has the ability to create and destroy. And animals may serve as stand-ins for humans or human characteristics as in the indigenous African and indigenous American trickster tales and the fables of the Greek storyteller Aesop. In some legends, animals perform heroic deeds or act as mediators or go-betweens for the gods and humans. They may also be the source of wisdom and power of a shaman a person who has contact with the spiritual realm and uses magic 
to heal the members of the tribe. Mythological animals have always been a popular subject in art and, and literature. Perhaps because they are often unlike any other creature seen in the real world. This fascination with mythological creatures continues to this day with modern fantasies such as C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Nardia, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, of course, Harry Potter, you know, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter, all contain creatures like those found in ancient mythology. So the notion or the idea of hybrids and animal and even um, otherworldly ancestors is not a new concoction of, of the modern imagination or, or, or modern culture, but indeed reminiscent of our connection to in practical terms, the dead or the ancestors, and most certainly uh, to the realm of nature, spirit, uh, and the gods. Uh, let's see. Uh, Anthony asks, what does one believe happens in the afterlife when believing in the Buddha tradition? Um, there is some comparisons because, you know, as you know, there's a hybridization that has taken place between Christianity and ATR and Catholicism and ATR in both the old and the new worlds, uh, but certainly uh, ideas of, you know, judgment, ideas of, you know, living the good life, ideas of, of becoming an ancestor. Uh, it depends on the ethnic specific group, uh, even in terms of which is a very umbrella, general umbrella term, which can include hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of ethnic groups and lineages among the uh, indigenous uh, Africa and even in the Americas when we consider, um, you know, our ancestors from both continents now coming together uh, and creating and forming new uh, belief systems and new ways of identity. So it certainly is can be ethnic specific, but certainly in voodoo in general, um, it, it's not very far removed from living a better life, being renewed, being healed, uh, being empowered, in, in some cases returning to nature, uh, depending on the roles a person may have played um, while they were living. And Neophyte Bokur says, spirit is eternal. Death is birth. I would even say death is a shadow, a bit of an illusion. Uh, a, a dinosaur certainly can be an animal spirit or an ancestral totem, uh, neon cicada, uh, most certainly. And I have fossils. Uh, I have fossilized mud, uh, fossilized wood. Um, fossilized swamp gas uh, from here in Louisiana. Uh, yeah, swamp gas can fossilize over millions of years. Uh, that absolutely helped me to tap into animal spirit, ancestral spirit totem um, from 
you know, your Jurassic and, and other periods in time and space. Yeah, uh, Shamafi likes her cat and her roosters. <laughs> okay, and her dogs. Yes, ma'am. I am on your Instagram, so I am familiar. Yeah, we hear things about, yeah. And, and, and why particularly Asia, I don't, you know, and, and particularly Chinese, I, you know, the Chinese have had a hard way to go racially, ethnically in the West, you know, since time memorial. But certainly there are other cultures who I will not name that could easily be just as maligned for a lack of awareness, ignorance about, you know, their usage of uh, nature and animals within the dynamics of their culture. Uh, Some of us of a certain age can remember, you know, uh, what was the name of that movie? They were viral occult videos. You often got them from the bootlegger um, back in the 80s, in the early 80s. Uh, and there was a series, a horror-based series, that was said to capture all sorts of horror and store it on film. Um, some of the worst things you can imagine, um, I'm not even going to say because, you know, I don't want to get the show censored. Um, one rhymes with, with uh, snake um, and involved uh, Pepsi, Coke, RC, 7-Up, you, you got it. And another of those viral tapes included uh, a particular, was it Faces of Death, Shamafia? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Uh, showcase ethnic groups around the world, partaking in, you know, delicacies that, you know, absolutely, absolutely would alarm, you know, and mortify uh, a Western palate uh, from the monkey brain, you know, to other, you know, items that now we see on TV shows like Fear, Fear Factor, and no one even believes an eye to, but back in the day, uh, Faces of Death was something that you... Um, you know, that you uh, uh, had a party around and you invited your siblings and your cousins over and and people, you know, shared in their disgust and their amazement uh, together. And so we saw many cultural nuances sort of being showcased and appropriated and uh, misrepresented often in those tapes. So, yeah, those are some great questions coming from the chat. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Blog Talk Radio, for hanging in there with me. Remember, your line to open at 845-277-9143. Uh, press the number one on your telephone keypad, and I'll open your mic uh, with your question, comment, request. The spirits of ancestors in ATR um, is as diverse and uh, varied as we are as people and individuals. How the spirits of ancestors can be a blessing or a harm and the power and importance of ancestors 
you know, in our society is a critical foundational pillar of ATR, traditional African-based religious systems. And ancestors in ATR are very important that they once were alive and now they are in spirit and they do not die again. These are the spirits of the departed dead who were very good citizens and well-respected in the family and the community. And this is often a point of contention for some people in the acknowledgement of ancestors. You know, how do we acknowledge, you know, relatives who did bad things, who did not necessarily uh, live these good lives? And so we don't wake them up. We don't seek to bring them forward. We don't seek, you know, them for advice. Uh, but we feed them on the ground. We pour libation on the ground to keep them still, to keep them quiet, to keep them in a state of stasis might be a good word for healing and evolution into the next life plane for them, the next dimensional space that they will absolutely step into and have the ability and uh, and the power to affect. We do not have to be uh, partakers in the generational curse. We do not have to inadvertently pass on the generational curse. Uh, through the bloodline. We do not have to fall victim to the duplication and the repetition of the generational curse just because it's in the DNA, just because it's in, in the bloodline. These ancestors used to command great respect, and they used to know a lot when they were alive. Hence, in the spirit realm, they become even more important as they would be found everywhere in the world, and would possess special power since they can get information from the living to the creator and vice versa. ATR is a way of life in which ancestors are part and partial of every major or minor branch evident in traditional African and indigenous-based systems, from weddings to births, deaths, even the fetching of, of food and resources. Ancestors maintain a spiritual connection with the living relatives, and generally most of them are, are good and kind. Followers, adherents, believe in the guidance of their ancestral spirit. I most certainly do, and, and stand my entire ministry on that foundation. Ancestors stay in the air, in the tree, in rocks, in caves, mountains, fords, springs of fresh water, uh, hence invisible, yet can be found everywhere. They look after descendants' welfare. They assist us in, in our daily lives and expect their cooperation um, and collaboration you know, in all things relating to humanity and, and the living. They have the power to help and to harm their children. Although we believe the ancestors' function is to help and not to harm, but certainly to correct and to bring balance where the balance might be lacking or, or in need. They are the benevolent 
guardians and protectors of the people. Ancestors revealed themselves mostly through dreams, but also frequently through visions and through diviners and through a system of divination that we are familiar with who are adherents to these traditions. So in these dreams and visions, they can warn family members of danger, come uh, coming of good, good things, uh, coming of visitors. Uh, they are mediators, uh, intercessors, if you will, in not just our prayer, but in our conflict, in the house, in the village, in our lives. They give a person power to pray to the supreme beings that we are. And this means that they are a means to reach God and our God selves who can send answers back, resources back, energy back that we can use right now in this most present moment in time space. They are able to do this because bilingual. They speak the language of man and they speak the language of the spirit realm. And it is highly believed that they have powers beyond human control because they now exist in the spirit realm, such as the ability to bring rain or to protect uh, cattle or food crops, your family, your children, your resources. Their responsibility is to procure various benefits for their living kin, such as health, long life, and the beginning of children, great wealth, and a good harvest. The crops and harvests are ancestral interests. And so is the weather that makes crops grow. Therefore, the dead are implored for rain in the rainmaking prayers and great ancestral and, and tribal ceremonies. The only negative actions taken by ancestral spirits is to cause major or minor illness to warm people that they have gotten off the path. By withdrawing their protection when their instruction has not been carried out, such as acts of serious sickness or series of misfortune can come into the family to please and appease the unhappy ancestors, we offer them. We offer them. We make sacrifice. And this shows the ancestors that we mean balance. This shows the ancestors can be both angered and placated can be satisfied and dissatisfied and can bring calamity among people. Even the Bible speaks of calamity brought among people based on their inability to hear, receive from the realm of spirit, whether it be the ancestors or other powerful beings that inhabit the spiritual realm. And so, in any conversation about this, you know, to use that a, a newer term, Syrian spirits, but certainly animal lineage, animal ancestors, opens up our part three uh, for the next episode, where we will talk specifically about ethnic groups, such as the Dogon, for example who believe themselves to be descendants of either animals, 
extraterrestrials or some combination of the two. So we would not only continue animal ancestors in part three, but will then introduce the animal, the mythological being, the figure, the uh, misunderstood phenomenon that also may exist beyond our, you know, known information about the physical world. Yeah, I probably do. I've had a relationship to animals, animal guides, uh, and even animal ancestors from a very, very young age. Um, I have a form of divination that's been gifted to me, taught to me uh, by nature, by by birds themselves that allow me to read uh, mostly the present and moving into the future from certain behaviors and activities um, from birds. My Blackhawk voodoo totem as a part of the black masking culture tradition here in, in New Orleans uh, is, is the serpent. It is the symbol of the serpent and, and the snake. And so there are those better qualities, those higher qualities, those evolved qualities that we have been taught to disown ourselves from uh, in Western society, you know, who demonize the serpent primarily through the biblical telling, but um, does not speak of sort of the knowledge, the wisdom of the serpent realm, even though we use that symbolism, you know, in medicine. You know, your caduceus, you know, that pole with the serpent entwined with the wings coming out of outside that you see at the doctor's office, you know, again, speaks to that power of the medicine in the serpent. Even in the magical book, um, when Moses is challenging the magi of, of the comedic priests, and they throw their rods and they transform into serpents, speaks to both that dichotomy of power um, and even healing that resonates in serpent magic. And then, of course, there's the idea of being bit by a serpent and not being poisoned uh, or not being killed by it. Uh, Another magical book reference that I can't quite remember where it is right now uh, in the book. But again, representing the medicine that is available, and not just in serpents, but in nature and in nature as a whole. Some of my more tragic tellings um, come from my childhood, and certainly my uh, my uh, sperm donor um, was obsessed with having a dog, but controlling the dog. Um, demeaning dogs, um, not treating them, you know, with the best, certainly not the modern care that you show their animals uh, today. And so I actually had a dog commit suicide, kill itself, um, partially out out of fear, I'm sure. Uh, We had left home uh, to go to an amusement park for, I don't know, a good 
12 hours out of the day because uh, it was a three-hour drive from our house only to have, you know, a major storm blow in. Uh, the dog is, you know, on a chain in the yard. Um, there was some shelter. We had these uh, concrete steps, much like like your wood steps at the back of your house that has that open space underneath it. So this concrete had this open space. So when you get, you know, a certain amount of rain and water and flooding and sudden and lightning, uh, even the most, you know, uh, enduring animal cannot handle that. And so the dog uh, apparently um, attempted to get in the house and managed to break through a door but was still on this chain. Um, and so hung itself, basically, uh, killed itself. And um, it's actually not a story that I can even remember having told before, uh, let alone live on air. Um, but I found the dog, of course, feeding the dog, cleaning up after the dogs was always my responsibility, uh, though they were his dogs. Uh, but I found, you know, King, white, beautiful white German Shepherd, uh, as it was. And so, um, yeah, I've had all kind of experiences with animals. Um, I've been a Boy Scout. I've been a, a Weed Glow. I've been a Cub Scout. I've been in the Army. I've lived in a rural area. <laughs> so I've had many encounters with animals. We had a series of encounters, Tony Bow and I, uh, leading up to Hurricane Katrina that we understood to be grave warnings. So at the time, we had no idea what the grave warnings were specific to. We knew a hurricane was coming. We knew a storm was coming, which we we lived through that every season. Um, but in, in that moment, you know, we had no idea uh, what was being communicated. We have green parrots here in New Orleans. Some people suggest they escaped from the zoo. Um, others suggest they traveled north and have stayed. But we've had generations of wild green parrots in uh, New Orleans that fly overhead and live way up high in trees and tend to make a lot of noise, um, you know, where they can be found, particularly uptown, the Garden District, uh, you know, certain areas you, you're sure to find them. They came down, I would say, within four feet of the ground the week leading up to Katrina. They were loud. They were communicative. They were certainly trying to tell us to get the hell up out of here. What are y'all waiting on? You know, we just didn't get it at the time. Uh, Tony Bow continued to work and worked uh, doubles at the graveyard and got home, uh, I want to say, either Friday or Saturday uh, before Katrina really hit and found a bullfrog in her toilet on the second floor of an apartment building, a bullfrog on the second floor of a modern apartment building, yeah, in the toilet. Uh, So... Yeah, I've had my share, Shamafia, of magical, unusual, interesting um, encounters with animals, animal spirits, animal totems, 
Uh, I have a weird magic with dogs that I didn't know I had until uh, I was out in California back in the late 80s. And me and a, a friend from Puerto Rico were on the beach, and we were walking north along the beach, and we had left um, we had left Venice. We had left uh, Santa Monica. We were north of there. If you all are familiar what I'm talking about. Uh, we were now in the private zone, you know, where they had those private beaches fenced off, and technically you're walking through people's properties. Uh, Janet Jackson had a piece uh, in that area at the time in, in Malibu. And we somehow ended up in this beach backyard with I, it must have been 20 dogs, 20 dogs, just, just a huge pack of dogs. I don't know if it was just a wild pack or, or if the owner, you know, kept that many dogs, uh, but the friend immediately went into a panic, and I had to talk him down off the ledge, teach him, shout at him about what not to do, while at the same time not invoking fear from the dogs because the dogs had no reaction to me and had every reaction to this guy. And primarily uh, because of the scent and the energy that he would be giving off in, in such a, a, a state of, of fear. So yeah, I've had my, uh, my share I've had my uh, my encounters, and we got a few minutes left. Listen, y'all, I've been wanting to get up from this computer for the last forty-five minutes. Uh, you know, we got seven Airbnbs on our block, and we are in the midst of carnival. And it's a group of sisters, but black women, that's been out in front of my house almost the entire time I've been on the air. And, I mean, they screaming, they making noise, they taking pictures in front of my door signs. And, and you know, you, you, your natural inclination is to at least stick your head out and, and see what the hell is going on. At first, I wasn't sure if it was some kind of domestic event uh, were, were going on out there. But, um, yeah, they smoking and having a great time. Uh, they clearly have no idea at all that I can hear them and that their sound is coming into my house while I'm broadcasting. Um, but yeah, they're they're right in front of my door. It's four of them. One's got green hair. The other one's got red hair. Uh, one's got on a blue hoodie. <laughs> Another one's got on a uh, uh, just a black uh, uh, I'm going to go way back Donna Summer wig and they just out there making all kind of noise while I'm trying to broadcast so this is the life that I, I live in New Orleans <laughs> this is the life we live and it's 24 7 during carnival yeah, I've done many things, uh, Craig Burns, that would probably blow your hair back. Uh, no. No. I uh, joined in 80, 84, 
I joined in 84. Thank you, Shamafi. I certainly appreciate you. Um, so I'm going to bid you all a great day. Uh, it's going to be a great weekend for Carnival and, and Mardi Gras. Um, be a lot of activities happening. Um, it won't be the last weekend. It'll be this weekend and then all of next week. And then uh, the 25th, the 26th, the 27th, the 28th, uh, and then of course the first uh, is the culmination of, of Mardi Gras. So I look forward to sitting here with you again at high noon U.S. Central Standard Time, remembering that all is truly and indeed a blessing if you can just see down the veils. Ashe, Asheo, and Ashe. Please stop. Please stop. Y'all are making too much noise.
about how honest is too honest when you're talking to friends. And uh, she tells me this, uh, how she really screwed this up the other I thought, but you tell me. Well, okay, there's two points of t- ways to look at this. There, there, yeah, no. I, I am a blurter, and as you all know, I'm a little honest to a fault, right? right. Not a little honest. Uh, yeah. And so I don't lie well, so I just tell the truth. So I'm having lunch with a friend. We've been friends at least 20 years. And she let her hair grow out and stopped dyeing it for the pandemic. And it's like a dusty gray. <laughs> just, I don't know. And she said, I let it grow out. What do you think? And I said, I don't like it. And I said, I think it ages you. And now she's so upset. Now she's mad. But if you ask someone for their opinion, yeah, should you get salad? You have to Should you? I just said, I don't like it. Yeah. It ages you. It, 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 it's funny the delivery that gets me every time. It, it, it's something about when says it. Anyone else says it, 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 it comes out wrong. Sunny says it, and you have to laugh. Because when I first looked at a picture of his friend. They said, but I love the haircut. Well, if you do the haircut, you can feel it. It's really cute. Yeah, but it's just a good idea for stuff. But Sunny does. She's a positive person. But if, if, but if she had a bullet, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I like her cut. Yeah, you just want to say. What I would say that is, it, 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 it's not for me. I, I'm not a big fan. It's not for you. The, 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 the right color. Because I, I also yeah. didn't love it. But what I would say is, you know what? Try it out for a couple weeks. Try it out. See how you feel in it. <laughs> Like, so, because what are you going to do when you but ask she me? asked me, I'm never going to like it. But you I know, my older sister-in-law, that she was, she was having a lot of difficulty dating. You know why? She got a whole head of gray hair. Men are very just, just sexist and ageist. Yeah. But yeah. how many times now, she got a man. How many oh, times on this show do we talk about women should age gracefully, you should accept that, don't do crazy things, don't do cool stuff. Cool sculpting, was that what cool cool. <laughs> Okay, don't do this, don't do that, you know. Um, so, but none of us will let our hair go. I'm not going to age that gracefully because I'm going to dye my hair and I'm going to I'm gonna maybe not do we cool sculpting. Uh, don't do that cool sculpting. <laughs> and then you said to Miss City, where, where Miranda, yeah. remember when she was here, we talked about it with her. Miranda let her hair go gray during the pandemic. And and, and it, got, it got a lot of bad commentary uh, online. I thought from, she looked adorable. I Hung up on 